All right, if you're anything like me, you hate running out of food on a trip. It's like a big fear, and so I'm I'm a big fan of snacks during an adventure, and one of my absolute favorite go-to snacks are wonderful pistachios. You may be familiar with pistachios and the brand Wonderful Pistachios, but if you're not, they are one of the highest protein nuts out there. One ounce serving of Wonderful Pistachios is six grams of protein. That's 10% of your daily value. It also includes nine essential amino acids, and they come with a ton of different flavors, varieties. There's a spicy version, there's lightly salted, there's no salted, there's so many. And every time I go on an adventure, I not even lying, I take an entire bag with me. And what's cool too, I love having the wonderful pistachio in shell because then that almost gives me something to do and focus on as I'm paddling or biking through the really monotonous parts of the adventure. Every great adventure is going to have plenty of boring moments and it's nice to have something to do and also something that is giving you some fuel like wonderful pistachios. So they're one of my favorite adventure snacks, favorite road trip snacks, and definitely leave me feeling better than a lot of other snacks you can turn to. So if you want to learn more about how to fuel your next adventure with wonderful pistachios, go to wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Uh, today we're throwing it back to 2017 when we had Brittany and Frank Kinsella on the show. They are they have been on the show a number of times in the past, and uh, this one was really cool. Skiing 14ers and public lands access. A lot of y'all who are listening, we are getting into ski season, so this is pretty uh, exciting content. I, on the other hand, am in the other end of the spectrum. It's warm. It's sunny, and I'm on the water. So this weekend, I'm going to be commentating at the Last Paddler Standing, which we talked about a little bit on Monday's episode or Tuesday's episode. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a paddleboard race put on by another alumni of the show, Greg Wingo, who does the Alabama 650 as well. And it's this 24-hour, basically round-the-clock race until there's one paddler standing. And last year, it lasted almost 50 hours. So check out the show notes uh, on Tuesday's episode with John Nippers. And there's a link where we will be live streaming. You can interact with me. We're going to have Athletic Brew in there and a bunch of stuff. It's going to be a lot of fun for anybody in person here in Sarasota. So 
Uh, if, if I don't see you there, maybe I'll see you online. If not, hopefully you get out skiing if you have some snow. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Adventure Sports Podcast again today. Kurt here. I have returning guests, Frank and Brittany Consella, and this is guess the fourth time to have them on. They're becoming regulars in the program now, which is awesome, because they just have so much to share about adventure sports. So their first show was on skiing all of Colorado's 14ers. Amazing show. Go to the adventuresportspodcast.com, click on the episode categories link at the top, and then you can do a control F to search for all of the shows that they've done, and they're all going to be listed there. Uh, They came back on to talk about uh, backcountry access, especially in the wintertime, and a program that they're working on called Save the Slate. Then they came back on to talk mountain biking, and it was toward the, the end of the mountain biking summer, but they have such an amazing thing going on with all the mountain biking, and they did a fantastic job of uh, encapsulating what the sport's all about. But now I'm excited to have them on because their book has just been completed that they've been talking about for a long time now, Backcountry Ski and Snowboard Routes, Colorado. And as in way of introduction, I'm going to read the About the Author section from the book. Brittany Walker Kinsella is an avid outdoors enthusiast who began skiing at age four on the slopes of Ohio. In 2011, she became the second woman and the ninth person overall to ski Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks. A former freestyle skiing competitor and coach, Brittany now spends her free time skiing, backcountry skiing, hiking, and mountain biking. Brittany pieces together multiple jobs that allow her schedule to remain flexible to maximize her time outdoors, including website development and tutoring middle school and high school math and science. Awesome. Frank Kinsella grew up in Golden, Colorado and began skiing at age three. A former ski racer and International Free Skiers and Snowboarders Association big mountain competitor, Frank found himself indulging in the backcountry surrounding Crested Butte on an increasingly regular basis. In 2008, he finished his goal of skiing all of Colorado's 14,000-foot peaks, the fourth person to do so. His favorite part about backcountry skiing is the freedom to tackle any line that catches his eye. Frank is a real estate agent in Crested Butte, where he and Brittany make their home. Awesome, guys. I love it. That made the intro really easy. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks for having us again. So I got to tell you, we're going to be talking about backcountry skiing this show, especially ski mountaineering, right? But you guys told me you had a book coming up, and we've known about this now for, what, a year? And I, I'm just going to tell you what I, I'm going to tell everyone I told you beforehand. I thought, okay, so we're going to have a little half-inch coffee table book. It's going to show some cool routes that people can kick down in the wintertime, and, and that's really cool that they're putting together a book. And then I got a copy of the book, and I'm like, What? The thing's nearly an inch thick. It is comprehensive, and it's amazing. The information in here is so useful for ski mountaineering and for backcountry skiing. And I just said it. You guys are the Jerry Roach of ski mountaineering now. (laughs) Well, thanks for the compliment. That's huge. Thank you. No, I am overwhelmed with the quality of this book and how much information is in it. So I'm going to let you guys talk. I've done way too much talking already. But let's start just by talking about the, the focus of the book. 
Okay. Well, I guess we could start at the beginning. And, um, you know, we were contacted by the Mountaineers books out of Seattle uh, three years ago. And that's when this whole thing kind of started. And uh, from there, kind of developed a, a list of over 100 routes that we thought might work. And that, that obviously changed as we went along. But uh, that was kind of the, the basic framework. You know, they did have kind of some parameters for us. They wanted everything in there so there are some pretty easy routes and that are really just you know backcountry skiing not wouldn't be considered ski mountaineering at all and then then that goes all the way up to some of the some of the tougher routes in the state and so that's what we were working on the last couple winters skiing you know some routes were new and and just making sure we, we felt comfortable with the ones we'd already skied in previous years that we could describe them and and uh, that's the book. So there's 102 routes all across the entire state of Colorado, everything from the steamboat zone to uh, the little plot of mountains west of Durango and everything in between. And everything in between. Yeah, I was looking at this. It's it's front range of Colorado through the, the San Juans, everything in between. It's all there. It's amazing. Yeah, we've included some, you know, pretty unique areas like the flat tops range and a route on uh, the Grand the Grand Mesa as well. <laughs> so <It's a> pretty unusual. <laughs> I'm just chuckling because people that are from out of state think flat tops. So I guess you're not doing alpine or downhill on that. And then then, but no, you can't. Right. And then also Grand Mesa. Mesa that sounds flat too. But <laughs> both of these or all of these are mountain ranges with some flat tops and some amazing sides, amazing slopes on the side. So. Is that where you have some of the flatter routes, or is there a mix? There's definitely a mix. I'd say it's pretty steep, the one that we have in um, in Flat Tops Range, and then the one on Grand Mesa is, is definitely a little bit more, uh, it's an easier route for sure. More of a ski tour route? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, how about the format, Brittany? Um, I'm holding it in my hands, and, and I would rather you describe it than me so I don't mess it up. But the format of how these routes are described, I mean, I see a lot of text. I see them sorted by location. I see maps. I see pictures. I see... You, you tell us how this works. Well, it, you know, kind of what we alluded to, it's broken down by range. And so we have quite a few ranges. We have the you know, park range, flat tops, and Grand Mason one. Then we have northern front range and southern front range um, because they're broken down into two different separate parts because they're just so big. And then we have the Mosquito and 10-mile ranges. We have the Gore Range, the Elk Mountain Range, Sangre de Cristos, and then the Sawatch and, San, and the San Juans. So, um, you know, it's all there, like we said. And then... Um, each route is under its respective range, and it begins with um, the info box, which basically tells you things like starting elevation, the high point of the route, how much vertical gain and loss there is, the distance, and approximate time. We also broke things down into what kind of skills you would need. So there's ski skills fitness level, technical skills. Um, we also have suggested gear and that we, the months that we suggest that it is best skied. And, um, also if you want to get a USGS map for the route, then we've stated which map you would find it on. Um, there's also maps and photos for pretty much every route. Well, it has everything that you need to know to 
figure out how to get to a route and what to take to, to, to be on the route. And then uh, the, the route itself, it describes how to ski. And I'm looking at the pictures here. They're so awesome. I mean, some of these, uh, I would call them the... The more exposed routes just blow my mind. These coulars just with, with snow going down through cliff faces for 2,000 vertical feet. I mean, it's just amazing stuff. Yep. I want to point this out, too. It says right here on the back, 102 backcountry routes. And here's the part that matters. It says that Frank and Brittany have skied them all. Exactly. You're not just collecting information that you hear from other people. No, this is from your personal experience. This is what you have done. Yeah, that's why it took us, it actually took us three years to write the book. And two of the years were solely focused on research. And so we went and researched a bunch of routes. And, you know, some of them never ended up in the book. Um, So it's not like we just put in there what we skied. We put in there the best of what we skied. Yeah, and then the the last year was focused mostly on just the writing and editing. Now, I no longer have to just say Frank and Brittany wrote the book on ski mountaineering. No, I mean it. They wrote the book on ski mountaineering. You guys have actually done it now. That's awesome. So, well, thank you. How many of these routes are 14ers? Oh, good question. Not that many. I bet it's only a half a dozen or so, maybe even less than that. We'll flip through the book real quick and see if we can count them up. Did you guys ever ski the... Uh, the Coulard on James Peak that goes off the, the front face. What are you calling the James Peak is on there. Um, but what are you calling the front face? Cause the, the one that faces South and a little East. Yeah. We have pretty much that whole like Cirque listed in the book. Hmm. So there's a bunch, there's actually a bunch of routes on James. It's pretty, um, it's a great ski mountain because it has a, a lot of routes on it, actually. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask is because I stood at the top of that in the summer and looked down and just went, oh, oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's enough to scare you looking off of it. But at the same time, I was envisioning it full of snow and oh, <laughs> it looks so good. But those are the kind of routes that you guys cover in the book from the easy to the hard. Yeah. Well, congratulations. The book is out and it's fantastic. It just looks so good. And usually on the Adventure Sports Podcast, we talk about the book at the end of the show. But I'm actually so stoked about this. I wanted to get it talked about at the beginning. But let's talk a little bit just about ski mountaineering in general, okay? Okay. Um, You literally wrote the book on it. So tell us what it is so that people can get a feel for what the sport is and maybe contrast it with, you know, your standard resort skiing and that sort of thing. Okay, well, I'll start with the contrast. So um, most resort skiing will be lower angle than what what we would call ski mountaineering, and that's and and I think it, it's important to differentiate ski mountaineering from ski touring. You know, um, you can go up on Berthet or Loveland Pass or wherever, and that's that's more of a ski tour that can be you know pretty low angle potentially, and uh, that's that's different than going up 14ers and 13ers and skiing down steep cars. Um, but in terms of ski mountaineering, they're often going to be a little steeper than uh, what's found at most resorts. You know, not necessarily steep resorts like like home here in Crested Butte has a lot of steep terrain, but but steeper than uh, than some of the other resorts. And you know, obviously there's no patrol in case something goes wrong, and the ski conditions can really be across the board when you're when you're talking about backcountry skiing. Um, sun crust, wind crust, uh, sometimes powder and sometimes corn and everything in between. So that would kind of encapsulate 
detouring and ski mountaineering and backcountry skiing, I guess. How many vertical feet do you think an aggressive skier does at a resort in a day? Oh, a lot more than they ski in the backcountry. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. Let's say uh, you're skiing an area with a 3,000 foot drop. You could probably do that four or even five times an hour. So from... If you went bell to bell, nine to four, that would be seven hours. We'll call it five. So 35 times 3,000 would be, you know, maybe 100,000 vertical feet skied in a day if someone was really going after it and not stopping Ooh. for lunch. Yeah, that's wicked fast, but it's yeah. possible. So now contrast that with what's in this book. Most of these routes are going to be, you know, anywhere from, say, 1,500 to 5,000 vertical, I would say. But of course, you know, if you, you, you can start doing laps, you can start adding, you know, nearby peaks. Uh, a lot of these routes, we might mention what we'd call like extra credit or, or something like that, where, hey, you're already there. You should maybe, if you still have the energy and the conditions are still good, you might want to do another nearby route. But, but still in general, you're, you're, most of these are going to be 5,000 feet or less unless you're, you're doing laps and, and moving fast. Well, I don't want that to sound small to anybody because what that means is you climbed those 5,000 verts in winter conditions and then, you know, you earned your turns. Then you get to come back down again. But often with this type of an approach to skiing, you might only get one big run in in a day, right? Exactly. It's probably not the best way to learn to be a really great skier, but it's one of the best ways to have some amazing ski runs if you are already a great skier. Am, am I right about that? Exactly. We always recommend that people learn skiing at a resort and perfect their skills skiing at a resort um, and then transition those skills into the backcountry. Well, Brittany, what kind of skill set is required for the backcountry that may not be required at the resort. You know, you end up with a lot more variable conditions in the backcountry. So you have to know how to handle that. Unfortunately, the best way to get good at that is experience. And you just acquire that experience by spending more time in the backcountry. But you'll never get good at it if you don't have good foundational skills, which you build up at a resort first. Mm, okay. Those of us who have skied, we know what the resort experience is like. And it's a lot of fun. You know, you're taking lifts up, you're, you're bombing down, you're looking for the new terrain, you're, you're exploring lodges and, and uh, looking for the pal that's hidden in the trees. You're skiing on groom trails a lot of the time or stuff that's skied out by other skiers. The backcountry is really not like that at all. So what makes no. the backcountry worthwhile? First off, it's really rare skiing inbounds to have a completely untracked top to bottom run, but that's kind of the goal in a lot of backcountry skiing is, you know, not to cross a single other track or even see another track other than maybe your partners that went before you on that same run. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the goal. That's like the best day ever back, or, you know, resort skiing, and that can happen a lot um, backcountry skiing. And then as far as the other, this, the more ski mountaineering stuff, you're, you're not going to find very many skiers that have routes like, you know, these steep routes that we're talking about that just doesn't exist at many of the ski areas. And that's a whole different kind of skiing and, and super rewarding. And as, as you progress in, in ski mountaineering, you realize you can go anywhere. I mean, the whole range of mountains is, 
you, you just you, you see one place and you look across the way and you see another and you can just go do that. There's no limits to it at all. Unlike a area that has, you know, generally has boundaries and, and ropes and rules. And there's none of that in the backcountry. You know, it sounds liberating, doesn't it? It does. I feel like at a ski area, you're lucky to find something that's steep for, you know, 500 to 1,000 feet. Whereas you can you can find that a little bit more in the backcountry if you know where to go. Well, that's the thing. At, at a lot of ski areas, the longer runs are the flatter runs. And the steeper runs are short because you get to the bottom of the mountain in a hurry, right? Exactly. Mm. There's another side to the experience, which is actually climbing the mountain. So let's talk about that a little bit. How does that add to the overall experience? Go ahead, Brittany. I think it adds, you know, something that you don't get when you're at a resort because it's, you just earn your turn so much more. It makes every single turn a little bit more rewarding because you're working uh, to achieve pretty much all of your vertical. You get to a point where you learn to appreciate the climb, sometimes even more than than the descent. It's about the whole experience um, and not so much just about the descent anymore. I think that's really cool. And the reason I say that is it turns skiing into more of the athletic endurance type sport that so many adventure sports kind of parallel. And I think a lot of people that do adventure sports, they get that. They get to the point where they like the big, long climb on the mountain bike because it's a good, healthy burn. It makes you feel alive, right? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great, great way to look at it. There's there's a lot to it when you're when you're going up and down and... And then there's a whole other skill set to learn, too, on the way up. Even on the easy routes, you can be an efficient skinner or you can be really inefficient and not know how to you know, do a kick turn and things like that. So there's a lot to learn, and that's not even getting into the, you know, the more difficult climbing with, with crampons and ice axes and, and even ropes on some, a couple of these routes. Mm. So you really do learn mountaineering skills as well as backcountry skiing skills, as well as downhill skiing skills. And I have to throw this out there too. I love being in the backcountry in the wintertime because of just the natural beauty. And you get to capture that in spades. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, a sea of, of white-capped mountains is uh, it's a good thing. It's, uh, yeah, no, we love it. <laughs> and I think sometimes... Sometimes when you're um, approaching, when you're ascending, you can soak in the beauty a little bit more because, you know, you're obviously going slower than when you're skiing down. So there's there's definitely a little bit more um, appreciation of that sort of thing on the way up. Mm, neat. Well, why do you guys do this? Brittany, let's start with you. Why do you ski mountains in the backcountry? What's in it for people? For me personally, I'm always looking for kind of a challenge. With backcountry skiing, there's a lot of challenges. Some of it is just learning to navigate your way through avalanche terrain safely. The other parts of it are just navigation period. You know, a lot of times we're exploring new areas and we're not really sure where we're going, but, you know, that's the challenge. We're trying to figure it out. And then, you know, I mean, some of it could just even be stepping it up to the next higher line, like, uh, you know, challenging myself by skiing stuff that's steep and steeper and steeper and, you know, stuff that makes that makes me shake a little. Sure. Let's talk about that just a little bit. It's funny because both of you have mentioned how steep it can be in the backcountry and how the resort skiing, either it's a short steep run or maybe it's not even as steep as, you know, what you can get in the backcountry. 
And a lot of people that, especially people I think that haven't skied as long, they're still looking at a double black in a ski resort as how would anyone ever do that? But what you guys are talking about is beyond double black. So describe it for us. Um, yeah, that's, well, that's, that's a hard one to say. I mean, again, there's going to be a lot of differences. A double black uh, at a skier is generally going to um, have a lot of moguls, have a lot of bumps on it. Not everywhere, but um, generally. And, of course, in the backcountry, that's not generally going to be the case, hopefully. <laughs> so it's just a lot different style. And But, you know, the steep skiing is just it, – it's – it's fun. It's my favorite thing to do. You know, if you do it, you know, um, you just know how fun it is to, to link up turns on something really steep and aesthetic. And, uh, I'd rather ski something kind of steep and aesthetic over 25 degree powder slope personally, but, um, a lot of people feel the other way and that's, they're, they're both fun. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with robust materials and integrity, and the capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means you have room for all your gear. All this meaning to drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. And there's also powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected. And also the innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the entire Defender family is ready for a wide range of adventures. They have the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. So push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell anything online at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million dollars in revenue stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're a podcaster trying to sell merch or selling autographed sports memorabilia, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one commerce platform to their personal POS system, Shopify has got you covered. Now, I do use Shopify with my day job. That's our website, and that's our platform. It's so handy. It makes it easy for us on the back end. It makes it easy for you as a shopper and as a customer to sell more. And they can help you all the way from those early, early days until you're a real business, making real money. And that's what I love about them. No matter how big you want to grow, they can grow with you and help you take control your business to get it to that next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ASP, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash ASP to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ASP. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, you mentioned powder. We have to cover so much before we're done here today, but let's put some parameters around this a little bit, if you don't mind. 
back when we did your interview about skiing the, the 14ers, we talked a little bit about gear required. And let's not do a deep dive since we already covered it, but let's just list how the equipment is different than what you would normally see in the uh, ski resort. So, Brittany, you want to take that one? Well, the main thing is having your avalanche gear, which most people don't travel around with at a resort unless they're doing some what's called slack country lines, which means you can go out of the ski area boundaries to backcountry terrain and then end up back in the resort to take the lift back up. Um, but we don't have a lot of that here in Crested Butte. We have none of it in Crested Butte. But basically, you, you need avalanche gear, which usually includes a shovel, a beacon, and a probe. And usually those things are carried around in a backpack. And the backpack is nice because then you can carry all kinds of extra gear. You definitely need to have a lot more layers than when you're resort skiing because you need to shed layers on the way up and bundle up on the way down typically. Um, you know, a lot of times you're wearing your helmet on the descent, but not necessarily on the ascent. So you probably want a different hat to wear when you're going up. You're, you're often wearing things like goggles on the way down, but sunglasses on the way up. So there's a, you're almost like carrying twice as much because you need an outfit for the way up and an outfit for the way down. You also need skins, which go on the bottom of your skis and allow you to get grip on the way up so you can glide forward, but it won't let you slide backwards. And then, you know, higher level backcountry skiers, if they're emerging into ski mountaineering, you need things like ice axes and crampons and possibly ropes. Mm. And the skis themselves, you use a, a different style of binding on the skis and even a different type of ski for weight, right? Uh, we're pretty similar on the skis is what we like in bounds. We're not quite as focused on weight as maybe some other people are but and then the bindings yeah definitely they are um you know they're going to be what's usually called tech bindings um and then the boots need to have special fittings for those tech bindings to work and there are there are other systems that can use a regular alpine boot but the systems that are best for the backcountry these days are are considered tech bindings and tech boots and so what that means is that you can uh free the hill for climbing, right? And lock the hill down if you prefer for going down. You could do a telemark style where you, you go down free hill. Which way do you prefer? We're alpine alpine touring skiers or AT skiers. So we, we do lock the heel down. You know, I've done a little bit of tele skiing, but that's not my thing. You know, it's fun here and there, but I, I haven't done a lot of backcountry with it. I'm just not as proficient at it, if anything else. So so if someone loves skiing in the resorts and they've built up their skill level and they want to try going into the backcountry, first they need to buy your book, but then they also <laughs> are going to have to get some gear. So what will they have to change about their resort setup so that they're ready to go? Well, I would say that actually first before buying our book, they should probably do an Avalanche 1 course, but um, then they could buy the book and then they could start looking at their gear and that like Brittany said, you're going to be looking at a, a you know, a beacon, a probe, and a shovel at a minimum. And then you're going to probably need to, to change your, your skis, boots, and bindings to a, to a backcountry setup. So you'd be looking at getting a new pair of skis with some tech bindings and compatible tech boots uh, and, and then skins. But you could, you could certainly use your old, the same poles that you were using inbounds and the same uh, clothes that you were using inbounds. A lot of times you're going to start looking at lighter, more packable things on that front. But 
to start, you could certainly use what you were using. That would be the start of it, I think. I think one of the hardest things is knowing what kind of skis you want and what kind of bindings you like. Um, and, you know, at that point, we would just recommend that people demo uh, gear. You can demo gear from most backcountry shops, it seems like. Um, they have some sort of rental or demo program. And, and it's just really good to try out different things so that you have an idea of what you want. Um, you know, and then, it, you know, it can be really expensive to jump into buying used is not necessarily a bad thing, especially when you're starting out. Oh yeah, I'm sure. So what kind of mountaineering skills do people need to develop? Frank, I'm glad you brought up the Avalanche One training. I'm obviously that's paramount, right? Just for safety. But what other skills do people need to have to be able to do this? Our our book is is so varied and, you know, at least a solid third of it is, you know, just backcountry skiing. So at that point you just need to need to be able to figure out how to how to skin up a hill and you don't need a lot of, um, a lot of more mountaineering skills for those routes. But as you progress and if you're interested in the, in skiing off of peaks, then you're going to need the crampons and ice axe and, or maybe, uh, a whippet style ski pole. And you're probably going to want to, you know, really the best way always is, is probably to hire a guide and, and do like a course or something of that nature, or if you at least get a mentor who really knows their stuff too, and, and can teach you how to self rest with your ice axe and how to do, you know, there's a lot of different styles of climbing with crampons. There's French technique, which is kind of like a, um, a crossover step. If ice skaters would know what a crossover is, but you're kind of keeping your foot flat. So you're not destroying your calves, um, front pointing all the time, which is what it's called when you, you're just jamming in your toes. And uh, you just need to start learning all those techniques and uh, putting it all together and getting some practice on on things with less consequences and and then move up from there. I think when we talked to you guys about mountain biking uh, several weeks back, that one of the things that came out on that was that, yeah, you have to invest in some gear at the beginning, but then it's free after that, right? So the upfront investment is, is there, but then after that, you can go do whatever you want, whenever you want. There's no lift ticket involved. And you've got the same thing going with the backcountry skiing. You have to get the right gear and the training up front. But then it opens up just a whole world of adventure that is really quite affordable. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's really just uh, just some gas money to get to trailheads at that point. And uh, the rest of it is free. And, of course, you're going to you know upgrade or replace equipment as it wears out or or breaks or whatever but that's that those are your only costs going forward once you've once you've got a whole setup started yeah and we all know that upgrading equipment is part of the fun too we might pretend it's not but it is (laughs) right right (laughs) well how fun Brittany, will you describe for us what a a day in the backcountry is like how does it uh, just take us through getting out of bed in the morning until you're back at the car after you've done your your ups and your downs you know, it can vary so much depending on your route and the time of year. Um, in winter, typically you're kind of getting up at a fairly regular time, like seven o'clock. Well, I mean, if you live here, if you live near the mountains and you're probably getting up around seven o'clock, if you're living in Denver or something and you have to travel into the mountains, it'll probably be earlier. Um, and then, you know, you end up at your trailhead, however you need to end up there. You start skinning like maybe eight or nine o'clock and you'll probably skin for, you know, a lot of the winter routes are often shorter. 
you know, it's just by nature, you're trying to access stuff that's a little closer and not as committing just in case the, the conditions aren't, aren't allowing you to ski some, some harder lines. Um, and so then, you know, you end up skinning up, uh, possibly boot packing and you end up at the top of your line, maybe after three, four hours. And then you, then you ski back down and there's usually some apres celebration at a bar afterwards. And then you move on to your next day. Hmm. Uh, But in, in spring, it's a little different. Like a lot of times you're trying to get to a line before it warms up too much because if it does warm up, it is more susceptible to something called wet slides. And those can be dangerous, although they can easily be avoided by timing your route earlier on most occasions in the spring. Um, So you get going. A lot of times we wake up in the dark, go to our trailhead, and there's usually a lot more boot packing involved and crampons and ice axes. And again, you get down to the, or you get to the top of the route. And a lot of times our routes are a lot longer in spring. Like they can vary from, I'd say our average route is more like eight hours and they can go up to 12 or even more. I think the longest day out I've had is 19 hours. And then you, you ski back, you know, to the car. Um, sometimes, you know, later in the spring, you end up having to even hike in for the first thousand, couple thousand feet um, before you're even actually on your skis and able to skin up or, or boot pack up. So I mentioned to you guys once before, I think, that my sons and I decided to go ski a, a 14er. And so it was handies in the in the springtime, a little bit too late in the spring. So we ended up strapping all of our alpine gear on our backs and taking off up the mountain. I was blown away at how heavy my alpine gear is when I put it on my back, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was nuts. So the AT gear that you're talking about, that gear, I mean, you can use the same skis you use in the ski area, but the bindings are a little lighter. The boots are lighter though, right? And often the ski is on the snow instead of on your back, but still, how do you manage that weight? Yeah, when it, when you're actually able to skin, you notice it a lot less because obviously, you know, good skinning technique, you're not actually lifting your foot up as if you're walking. So you're not ever, you know, picking up the ski boot binding with every step. You should be, you know, gliding. So that's kind of a, a key technique point that hopefully you're you've got a good stride going. There are a lot of people actually though who kind of stomp around and you kind of wish they'd look at their <laughs> form a little bit. So that's, that's a huge thing. And as far as, you know, when you do have to climb with it on your back or whatever, then, I mean, the bindings are a lot lighter than an Alpine binding. I don't know exactly how much, but it's, that's a huge difference. And the um, boots as well are, are considerably lighter. The skis, again, like we were saying, we, we don't get quite as involved with that, but you can, you can get much lighter, narrower, shorter skis if, if, um, weight's really important to you, but, um, it's a pretty substantial sacrifice for the descent. And when you're, especially on the skis, you know, the lighter you go, the less mass they have and, and mass is what can drive a ski through, through crud and, and crusts and things like that. And then, um, yeah, but if that's if the lighter weight on the way up is worth it, then then you can go that route too. And we're you know we're not necessarily ones to talk about how heavy gear is because our original gear that we really first started backcountry skiing on was so incredibly heavy. It was basically the same 
as alpine gear. I mean, I, I first started backcountry skiing in my Lang race boots <laughs> and, you know, basically super heavy, heavy mantra skis with Fritchie Freeride bindings, which were heavier than any, you know, ski resort binding. So, you know, all the equipment that we have now is so incredibly light to us that we we don't even notice that much anymore because um, what we had to com- to start with and compare it with was just so much heavier. Well, this all speaks to a fitness level then, doesn't it? I think that people could use this as a sport to get fit by being really intelligent about what they choose to go do, right? But I think for some of the bigger stuff, there's a fitness requirement, right? There's a prerequisite here. How fit do you have to be to do this? Well, I think, again, it depends on what you're doing. If you're, um, you know, going up some of the shorter pitches, it's a Birthed pass and then getting a uh, getting a ride back up, hitchhiking or, or running shuttle or whatever. That's not that bad of a day, but we certainly have some routes. I mean, we have a route on La Plata Peak in the Sawatch Range, which is a 14er, and we're actually suggesting going up from the north side, go down the south side, come back up the south side, then back down the north side. So, you know, you're summoning a 14er twice in one day, and yeah, right. that's a long day, and yeah, you need to be pretty fit to tackle a route like that versus um just a shorter day at, at one of the one of the passes or something like that but you know as you as we talked about during mountain biking and, and really it's anything you know if you just hike one or two 14ers a year it's gonna hurt if you go mountain biking once every couple of weeks it's gonna hurt same thing with backcountry skiing but the more you do it the less it hurts and then and the easier it is and the farther you can go and uh the more possibilities that are open to you, really. Mm, yeah, I see that. So making a habit out of it makes it more enjoyable. That's what you're saying. For sure, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're going off the couch every single time, it's going to feel like you're going off the couch. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. Well, I'm curious, too. We're, we're coming into ski season here, and I've done more mountain biking this year than I've had the opportunity to do in previous years, and I'm really excited about that. But I'm a little concerned because it's a different motion. I'm using my legs when I mountain bike. I'm going to be using my legs when I ski. But how different is it? it it's a lot different, I would say. Um, there's some, when you're descending on a bike, you should have kind of some upper and lower body separation, just like you have in skiing. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. You're using different muscles. Uh, skiing, you're using so many of these tiny little muscles that who knows what the names of them are in your, in your feet and your calves and things like that, that, that are your kind of control muscles. And, and that's why, you know, doing a little bit of hiking is probably helpful. And then there's a lot of, uh, you know, I feel like most ski towns and, and other places have uh, ski conditioning, camps or whatever, whatever at this time of year that you can go to and start, you know, jumping on onto like, you know, the wooden platforms off and on and and doing all those other, all those other activities that kind of better mimic skiing than maybe mountain biking does in some ways. Yeah. I've always found that hiking actually gets you in better shape for, for backcountry skiing than mountain biking does. Although just having a good fitness in anything will always put you steps ahead. Oh, yeah. Your cardio really, really helps. Yep. Okay. Well, I was just trying to get all of our listeners kind of a feel for what this sport is all about, what's required. What would you say the the rewards are? What are the biggest rewards of, of doing this as an adventure sport? Oh, you know, the, the rewards are just so varied. You know, it can start with just some of the best powder skiing days of your life. And, you know, I, both of us agree that 
we actually prefer skiing a really steep line compared to powder skiing, but that doesn't mean that we don't love powder skiing. We still love it. There are countless days that we've had in the backcountry, which just have had really, really good powder skiing and some of the deepest conditions that, you know, you think you're never going to have that again, but then you do. And, you know, it starts with just that. And then, you know, working your way up to more and more challenging terrain and, you know, eventually skiing things that, you didn't really even think that you could possibly ski. And that is just so rewarding in and of itself. I remember when we talked to the two of you about uh, skiing the 14ers, we brought up the steepness of some of the ski runs and the exposure with cliffs and things like that. And uh, I think you both agreed that the bigger challenge as far as exposure was concerned seemed to be on the climb and that the descent, once you got the skis on, you were much more comfortable Uh, Does that apply to the ski mountaineering on some of the tougher routes in this book too? Absolutely. Yeah. We're still both more comfortable on our skis than on the climb. And you know what's interesting about that is people that are just learning to ski might be thinking, wait a minute, you just said you are safer in your skis than out of your skis. And that's what you just said. Why is that? It's a comfort thing. I mean, you know, both of us grew up skiing at such a young age and you know, skiing is almost like walking to us. It's kind of just natural. It's who we are. It's how we slide around on the mountains. Um, you know, when you ski over a hundred days a year, um, (laughs) you know, it just becomes part of, part of your body. You just have that muscle memory and, um, you just get so good at it. But, you know, just because we ski a hundred days a year doesn't mean that every single one of those are backcountry skiing or climbing harder things either. So our comfort level climbing is a little less than it is skiing. Mm. Well, sometimes I I see people, I'm just going to say it, there's some people that get in over their heads because they want to point at something and say, dude, I skied that and I didn't die. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you see that all the time. What are some cautionary statements about that? Does your book help people to to be able to judge between what's potentially going to kill them and not? You know, we do have a rating system, but skiing is, of course, so uh, condition dependent, too, that, you know, it's not like, you know, if a rock climb is rated a 5.8, it's 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 a 5.8. That's, that's how it is. But a ski route, you know, if you've got hero snow conditions, whether it's corn or, or pow or whatever, then it's going to be fairly easy. But if you go up there and you drop in and all of a sudden you've got, you know, an inch thick crust and powder underneath. Uh, yeah, all of a sudden you're, it's like you're climbing a 514 instead of a 58 or whatever. So to use that analogy, um, so it's, it's a tough one with backcountry skiing because it, it is such a changing medium, but hopefully, you know, people will kind of get a, get a feel for, for how these routes are. And, and if they do one route comfortably and there's another route that looks fun, that's, rated the same, hopefully it'll it'll end up being comfortable again instead of um, jumping past where they maybe should have. Well, another thought that I just had is when the conditions are what they are at the ski resorts, then sometimes, you know, everyone's waiting for the perfect storm to come so they can run to the resorts and, and enjoy better conditions. It seems to me that with a little bit of planning and paying attention to what's been going on with the weather, you could probably find amazing conditions almost any time you want to in the backcountry if you're willing to drive a little bit. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. But part of that is the other challenge is learning how to predict 
where it's, you're going to find good snow. Um, and it might pertain to a particular aspect, but maybe not just that kind of aspect, but like you're looking for a specific feature, like maybe you want trees or more of a core that's protected and not windswept. Um, and that can vary depending on your your particular location. And we don't always have everything about that in, in the book because that's so hard to discern per se, but that's just be, you know, that's just learning to become experienced in the backcountry, which is hard to teach somebody that just comes with experience. Well, let me, let me do some rapid fire kind of yes, no questions just for fun. Frank, have you ever had to spend the night unexpectedly in the backcountry doing this? No. But are you prepared to, if you had to? You know, I probably could have more, but, you know, there's always a fine line. I mean, you're really going to cruise around with a sleeping bag or something on a day trip. But uh, I think I could probably figure it out. I usually at least have a, a down layer and things like that. So I'd, it would be uncomfortable, but I'd, I'd, I'd be all right. So always have a down layer or something like that. Brittany, um, have you ever triggered an avalanche? Yes, actually. <laughs> and were you above or below it? <laughs> below it oh no <laughs> yeah yeah it happened a few years ago and um my friend and I were skinning up and all of a sudden we heard this wump and it wasn't very good and then yeah it ended up remotely triggering an avalanche above both of us and then we both turned around and started to ski back down. But anybody who's tried to ever do that with skins on knows that it's difficult to ski downhill with your skins on. And that's what we were trying to do. And eventually we were able to completely outrun the avalanche. Wow. That's spooky stuff. It, it was. It, it definitely like was one of the scarier things that has happened to either of us. So, Frank, have you ever had to uh, unleash your shovel and use it, backcountry skiing? I have not. No, the answer would be no. I have had uh, some avalanche incidents where other members of my party were in an avalanche, but they were have never been buried, so I haven't needed to. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with robust materials and integrity, and the capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means you have room for all your gear. All this meaning to drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. And there's also powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected. And also the innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the entire Defender family is ready for a wide range of adventures. They have the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. So push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash 
defender. Rodeo season is going to be kicking off soon, and you know, I I like the rodeo. I like going to the rodeo. I like going to cattle auctions and all sorts of those activities, and I want to look the part while I'm there. I love Tecovis as my go-to boots company, and if you've ever been in one of their stores, it's an amazing experience. Their motto is, don't go gently. They are my favorite cowboy boot, and they bring a fresh perspective to heritage boot making, and they carry forward all those time-honored traditions and quality you will find in a great pair of cowboy boots but they're innovative on comfort style and service they have western boots for men and women and are handmade from the most premium leather and follow over 200 time-honored individual steps in their boot making process pretty cool they're austin designed texas tested and handmade and if you want to go to one of their stores, it is an amazing experience. They take customer service to a whole new level. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. And as a special opportunity just for you listeners, Tecovis is going to throw in their best-selling trucker hats or a ball cap for free into any purchase over $100 at tecovis.com. Just use the code ADVENTURE at checkout. Again, that's Tecovis, T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com, and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to add a free hat to your order over $100. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. So how frequent and common do you think it is, if you know what you're doing and you pay attention to that, right? Let's just say it that way, that the unpredictable happens. How much do we have to worry about avalanches? I guess that's a bottom line you have to worry about it a lot you know there's a little bit there's a lot made of numbers i mean if you're right about assessing avalanche conditions 99 percent of the time but you're out 100 days then theoretically you would have an avalanche incident one day that's kind of the hard part about it so you really really need to pay attention and and think about where you're at and what the conditions are you know it also depends on what your goals are i mean our my goals are probably a little more aggressive than most because I, I just, that's what I enjoy and I'm aware of that. But, it, you know, you can certainly ski lower angle terrain 100% of the time and with 0% avalanche danger if you're, um, you know, if you're never on a slope that's connected to a steeper slope above and, you know, or, or there, and that's one reason why skinning up ski areas is popular for people who don't want to have to think about avalanche concerns at all. Mm, yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's important to realize that, like, our goals change based on the conditions. Like, we would never go ski some of these steeper lines in this, in this book if we weren't really certain that the avalanche conditions were pretty safe that day. So, you know, we always we base our goals for the day on the conditions. You know, when we talked about the, the timing that's that's listed in the bullet points for every route uh, on a all these steeper, you know, mountaineering routes, it's, it's going to say, you know, March through June or, or some combination of those months. Cause you know, you're not going to go ski the Landry line on pyramid in January, even if it is covered, it's just, um, that would be pretty rare for that. It, it would generally be too dangerous at that point in time. So I'm glad that you guys are, are pointing this out. And that the book also indicates, no, this is more of a snow has consolidated type run, right? Right. And I just, I want to say that for the people who don't know about avalanche danger, it's really important to uh, to plan carefully. 
So you use a lot of resources as well. You call them out in the book to predict what the conditions might be. There are all sorts of resources online that kind of rate what the avalanche danger is and what the weather is doing and that sort of thing. But when you go up into the backcountry, how many times do you find the conditions are not what you predicted? Oh, there's definitely days where that happens. I mean, I I think we've actually gotten pretty good at predicting them, but, you know, we get surprises occasionally. Um, And then sometimes I think what happens to us is a little bit typically what starts to happen to people um, when they are experienced backcountry skiers. We we fall into the same trap. Um, You know, we get familiar with the zone and we expect it to be a certain way. And then occasionally it surprises us when it's not. And that can get a, that's more often what gets us into trouble than, than not. And, you know, it's, it's occasionally that's a good reminder that we need to evaluate even familiar terrain, like it's new terrain all the time. Yeah. Good reminder. Good reminder. So I'm just kind of curious, you guys have done so much of this. When I get to a trailhead and I'm getting ready to take off on a winter ascent or even just a summer 14 or it doesn't matter, I, I get so excited. You know, you get a little adrenaline burst before you even get out of the car. Over time, does familiarity reduce that? And over time, does it become more of a joyride? Or are you always just as excited? I think that changes every time out for me, at least. I mean, if it's something I've skied a hundred times and there are you know, things in the Crespi backcountry I've skied a hundred times, but if I know it's going to be a good day, cause it's pretty clear that the conditions are going to be good, then yeah, I'm, I'm super pumped up. And if it's something that I've had my eyes on for years and haven't ever skied, um, I'm definitely pretty pumped up. So that's the highest, highest level of expectation for me, I guess. Um, but there are other days when you know, the conditions, maybe we just, we know they're going to be poor either from needing to stay on something that's really safe because the avalanche conditions are bad or, or just, you know, we're in a dry spell and it's been sunny and windy and it's almost impossible to find an aspect that's going to have good snow, but you're like, well, let's just go out and get some exercise, I guess. (laughs) So it, it can be anywhere in between. I think those two extremes for me, Hmm. Brittany, what about you? (laughs) <laughs> I guess the question is, how exciting is it for you after you've done it over and over and over again? It loses the excitement a little, but like a day in the mountains is still always way more fun than not being there at all. So I always have appreciation for it and I always enjoy it no matter the day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right that like initial anticipation and it's an excitement might not be quite there, but it doesn't mean that it isn't a good day. Well, I kind of bring that up because it's fun, you know, how we mature into a sport, but the sport remains fun. Maybe the appreciation changes and the expectations change, but I think that this is a sport that you could do for a lifetime, don't you? Absolutely. You know, it's kind of funny. I'm going to throw the the trout fishing. Uh, people have heard this before, but I think it applies to a lot of adventure sports. You know, when you start fishing, you want to catch a fish. And then you want to catch a whole lot of fish. And then you want to catch a big fish. And then you want to catch a whole lot of big fish. And then you don't care if you catch any fish or not. You just want to be out there. And (laughs) I get an analogy. Yeah. I think that probably this stays more exciting. You have to keep your guard up, keep your alertness. You know, like you said, Brittany, make sure that you're looking at the conditions every day as if it's a new day because they change so much. But I guess the point I'm trying to make is I could see how this could stay exciting for years and years and years and years and years. I, I just can't imagine. It's such an exciting thing to do, to be in the backcountry in the wintertime, to ski these, these amazing lines, 
and to actually get to summit some peaks and see the views and get the exercise. I think it's wonderful, and I thank you guys for working so hard to put together this book so that people can discover this sport and also do it a little bit more safely and better informed. So thank you for that. Thanks. Yeah, we also just want to get people out there, you know, pushing themselves and exploring more, um, you know, within their ability level. But, you know, it's always it's always good to challenge yourself. Well, how can people get a copy of the book? They can get it on our website, which is 14erskiers.com, which starts with a 1-4-E-R-S-K-I-E-R-S. Uh, so they can get it there. It's available online on Amazon and uh, at the Mountaineers Books, which is our publisher. And local shops are starting to receive their copies, um, too. We, we uh, saw some copies in a bookstore last week. Those are the first ones we'd seen um, in a mountaineering store so far, but they should be at your local local store. And if it's not, um, maybe ask them to, to carry it. I got to warn people, this is the kind of book. So if I go into a bookstore to get a book and I walk by a rack and I see something on the end cap or something, I pick it up. This is the kind of book that goes out with me that I never plan to buy. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? This is that kind of book. So um, don't think that you can look at this book and not buy it, folks. If you like skiing, then uh, you're going to want this book. It's, it's just first class. Very, very good guidebook. You said 14erskiers.com. And that website also has your mountain biking guides. It also has the information about your 14er skiing that you've done and a lot of blogs about other outings that you've done through the years. So it's a treasure trove of information about adventure sports in those areas. So thanks again for putting that together. Any parting thoughts or advice for people that would love to get into backcountry skiing? Brittany, how about a, a parting shot? Well... I'd say just make sure to get your avalanche training and go out with some experienced people who can really show you, you know, how to travel safely through the backcountry. Because that is a skill that is acquired over a long period of time. And it's really good to have some mentors to help you through that. Frank, what about you? What's your parting advice? I would say the same, same advice. And uh, as we talked about, you know, start small and, and work your way up. You know, it's not really fun to go up a route and then sidestep down the whole thing or something because you you just weren't ready for it. So, you know, keep your goals realistic and uh, yeah, like Brittany said, get your get your training, get your mentors. Uh, we never really talked about it, but uh, we think that you should probably you know have a wilderness first aid class under your belt too. Um, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's kayaking or, or mountain biking or whatever, you really should have some some medical training uh, so that your partners, you know you're responsible. We're all responsible for our partners when we're out there. So we, you should not only have the avalanche training, but some medical training as well, in our opinion. Yeah. Well, thank you for opening up the world of backcountry skiing to us. We appreciate that. And well, it might sound like I gushed a lot about this book. And I just want everyone to know I didn't gush about this book because um, Frank and Brittany have been on the show four times and I think they're great people. I gushed about this book because they've done a stellar job. And so once again, the book is... Backcountry Ski and Snowboard Routes, Colorado by Mountaineer Books, written by Brittany and Frank Kinsella. Guys, thanks again, and thank you for being on the Adventure Sports Podcast. Thanks for having us. And uh, yeah, for anyone who is interested, we're also uh, be on a book tour for the this whole winter, uh, visiting a lot of the other mountain towns and the Front Range. And uh, you can see those dates uh, on our website. There's a tab that says uh, book tour. 
and hopefully we can we can meet a lot of people and talk about skiing. We'll be doing book signings at all of these events as well. Right on. So go to 14erskiers.com, and there you can find the book tour information, which I assume is going to be updated frequently, so people should check in often. Is that right? Exactly. We're adding more dates all the time. Okay. All right, guys. Well, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And for all of our listeners out there, you know, backcountry skiing, you got to know how to do it safely. But what a wonderful sport and a great way to make wintertime even more fun than summer. Can you believe it? So get out there and have some fun. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.